Hey everyone, you're listening to the Authors of Mass Destruction podcast with fiction author and national security expert Natasha Bajma. Join me as I interview subject matter experts about weapons of mass destruction and emerging technologies and authors who write about them. We'll discuss the ethical, societal, and technical aspects of science and technology so that you can tell great stories and still get the details right. Hey everyone, welcome to episode number 27 of the Authors of Mass Destruction podcast. My name is Natasha Bajma, aka WMD Girl on Twitter. I'm a fiction author, national security expert, and your host for this podcast. If you're interested in science and technology and reading good fiction, or want to write fiction based on technology, you're in the right place. Before we get started, a few notes. The views expressed on this podcast are my own and do not reflect the official position of the National Defense University, the Department of Defense, or the U.S. government. The Authors of Mass Destruction podcast is proud to be part of the Authors on the Air global radio network. Check us out at authorsontheair.com. If you enjoy my podcast and want me to keep it up, I sure hope that you'll become a patron for only a few dollars a month at patreon.com. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n forward slash Natasha Badma. My headline for this week is about nuclear weapons. Uh, It's called A Cheaper Nuclear Sponge by Steve Fetter and Kingston Reef, published on October 18 on War on the Rocks. So you might be perplexed by the title, What is a Nuclear Sponge? Um, You might also not know that the U.S. plans to spend about $1.2 trillion over the next 30 years to modernize our nuclear forces. So I'll get to nuclear sponge in just a moment, but when we talk about nuclear forces, we're really modernizing nuclear forces. We're talking about mostly a set of delivery systems for nuclear weapons. Um, They're often referred to as the nuclear triad, which refers to nuclear weapons delivered from land, air, or sea, hence triad. The delivery systems generally include intercontinental ballistic missiles, which in the U.S. reside in silos in the Great Plains region, sea-launched ballistic missiles from nuclear submarines, uh, gravity bombs, and nuclear cruise missiles delivered by bombers and fighter jets. So the article, The Nuclear Sponge, addresses the ground leg of the triad, so the Intercontinental Ballistic Missiles, or ICBMs for short. The U.S. currently has about deployed about 400 Minuteman III ICBMs ready to launch at any moment in response to a nuclear attack. ICBMs are considered the most vulnerable leg of the nuclear triad because in the event of a nuclear attack, U.S. leaders would come under a great deal of pressure to use them or lose them. Why? Because our adversary nuclear forces would seek to take these out first to limit damage to their own country in a retaliatory nuclear attack. In other words, these missiles serve as a quote-unquote warhead sponge for our adversary's nuclear missiles. That is the role that um, nuclear experts envision for them. So the Minuteman III has been upgraded several times, and their operational lifetime will expire around 2030. For this reason, the current modernization plan includes the replacement of Minuteman III missiles with a new missile that can be deployed until, I think, 2070. Building these missiles will likely cost as much as $150 billion. That's one leg of the nuclear triad, $150 billion. So in this very interesting article, Steve Fetter and Kingston Reef argue that the Miniman 3 can be sustained beyond the missile's expected retirement in, the, in 2030, and that we should wait to replace these missiles given the high cost and spend the funds on higher priority issues. I encourage you to read the article, um, but for now, let's get to the interview. Hey 
everyone. Welcome to the Authors of Mass Destruction podcast. Today I'm here with John Wolfstall. He's a renowned nuclear expert with a career spanning several decades since the end of the Cold War. He was the former special assistant to the president for the national security and senior director for nonproliferation and arms control at the National Security Council. He is currently a non-resident fellow at Harvard University's Belver Center and Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. He is also a senior advisor to Global Zero. John, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me on. So I'm, you worked at the White House for a couple of years, and I, I think everyone wants to know, what, what is it really like to work at the White House? How, you know, is it really as sexy as we think it is? Um, what are the days like? Um, so sadly, it's not as sexy as you think it is. Um, it, it's very interesting. Anytime uh, I would run into old friends, they'd be like, is it just like it is in the West Wing? And when I would explain, you know, the first 20 times I got asked the question that no, it's really not, the look of disappointment on my friends' faces would be so severe that eventually I just started saying, yes, it's exactly like <laughs> Because uh, it just wasn't worth all of the, the sadness that I instilled. I mean, it, it's a tremendous honor. I mean, it, just from, a, from a, a, a point of view of a citizen and an expert to walk into the White House. I worked in the uh, old executive office building, which is on the White House grounds. But to be able to walk in there every day, you see the flag flying over the building and you realize you're really there representing uh, the security of the United States. It's just a tremendous honor. Um, what really is like the West Wing is that pretty much everybody you meet Everybody you talk to in the National Security Council is a is a world class expert. I mean, it, it is in many ways it is the world's greatest think tank. It's the world's greatest university. But for people that are actually implementing policy, thinking about what might actually happen to the country, and taking active steps to prevent it. And so, on that level, the the conversations you have, uh, the seriousness of purpose, the implications of what you're doing, that sense really was like some of the more dramatic moments on television. But a lot of it is really slow meetings where you're doing bureaucratic politics 101. Uh, you're pushing a lot of paper. You're trying to engage in a lot of um, bureaucratic handholding um, filled with minutes of extreme tension. And then, of course, the pressure of trying to deliver for the president, the vice president, uh, cabinet secretaries, the national security advisor, all of whom are under tremendous pressure, feel tremendous responsibility, uh, and nobody wants to be the person to make a mistake or not have the paper ready or have said something that isn't accurate. Uh, and so in that sense, there's a lot of stress underlying the whole process. So uh, what are, what's a typical day like? like? How long are the hours you work? It, it depends. Um, you know, there are, uh, there are up days and down days. I would say a typical day is probably... Uh, seven to seven, uh, eight to eight. I mean, you're doing 12, 13 hour stretches. There are times when you're, you're following uh, detailed activities, meetings, operations, where it can stretch much longer than that. Um, I am a father of two young children and I had a number of people on my staff with children. So I really tried to set an example where I would um, uh, come in maybe a little bit later, some days if I could, as late as eight or 8.30. Um, I would try to get home when I could to have dinner with my children and then come back into the office at eight or nine o'clock and try to do a couple of hours writing or email uh, uh, late into the evening, uh, and um, which my staff, I think, really appreciated. The, the example of uh, having a life for your family so that you can do your job better, I think, was an important um, policy that I adopted. Um, you definitely also get trapped in this view that, well, you know, I'm at the National Security Council. I must be indispensable. And you find yourself waiting there and being there even when you don't have to be. And that's where I really took pride in saying, you know what, I can get away today. I don't need to be here 
Um, you know, I have a secure telephone at home. They can always call me if they need me. Um, but, uh, you know, th there are long days. They're sometimes tedious. Uh, and uh, you're often finding out that you, you know, lift your head up from your computer uh, and it's three o'clock and you haven't eaten lunch and you have to get your way over to a deputies meeting or a principal's meeting. So, uh, you know, there's definitely a lot of unpredictability. I, I would say about 50% of the day is taken up with emails, cables, and writing. Uh, and another 50% is taking up with meeting both inside the building, uh, hosting meetings for the interagency where you are the representative of the president, which my brother never really lets me live down because he's like, <laughs> who are you to be representing the president? Uh, <laughs> and then uh, occasionally some higher level meetings where you have to meet privately with senior staff, president, vice president, um, national security advisor to try to give some insight or get some, some mm -hmm. specific things done. Yeah, so I spent um, three years in the Pentagon, and one of my duties was to attend meetings um, in my boss's place over at the old executive office building in um, director-led, um, what we called sub-IPCs, and I don't know what the acronym breaks down to, but those are meetings. Interagency Policy Committee. Thank you. Those are, those are basically interagency meetings um, led by a director at the NSC, which um, generally is a mid-career um, person detailed from another agency, I found. And um, I was definitely in awe of the building of the flag, of, of being there, um, definitely a sense. Um, after a while, though, I was like, I don't know if I want to haul my butt down to the White House for yet another one of these meetings. But what struck me about when I came into you guys' offices was you you'd go, you know, look so glamorous in the hallways there with the beautiful floors and the tall doorways and you open the office to like a packed suite, like packed with cubicles. And, and um, what also struck me is that, um, so you're talking about a, a, a mid-career person who's fairly senior in the government going over on detail to the White House. There's no assistance for them. Basically, you make photocopies, yep. right? Yeah, everybody thinks it's this, this plush position. I mean, you're uh, you're trading proximity for uh, influence. Um, to be on detail at the NSC as a director, uh, as a, 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 an expert assistant, or you know, as a substance expert, you're basically providing pieces of paper that go directly to the National Security Advisor and often to the president himself. Uh, and so, yes, the trade-off is you don't have a secretary, you don't have an XO, particularly at the Pentagon, where you're used to having you know, either a, a staff sergeant or a captain at your beck and call. Uh, don't, don't feel bad. Senior directors make copies too. Uh, and we sometimes put together our own book and uh, we do a lot of our own writing. But yeah, it is, um, it, you do get caught up in the trappings at times. I mean, you always have to be careful. For example, when you leave your office, uh, it wasn't unusual for me to walk smack into a secret service detail uh, or run smack into the president or the vice president. So, you know, what, you had to, had to remember, yeah, it's sort of a, a, an office full of veal fattening pens, but on the other side of the door is, uh, you know, the leader of the free world. Um, and, and I once was late to a meeting. I had to go over to the West Wing, and uh, a woman I'd known for many years who was the deputy chief of staff to the president for the first year of the administration, Mona, uh, I was running down the hallway, and she looked at me. She said, John, when you run, people worry. <laughs> <laughs> And, and at that point, I realized she's right. You know, if I'm have to be a couple of minutes late, it's just uh, it's not the place where you want to um, set the wrong image. Yeah, definitely. So I I, de I definitely had that experience as well. I was a special advisor, senior advisor at the Pentagon, and there was one moment in particular that I remember at the copy machine. Um, I think it was 9 p.m. at night, 
and I was talking to the copy machine. There was no one else in the office. And I was making a trip book for my boss, the assistant secretary of defense. Mm -hmm. And I was like, isn't this glamorous? It's 9 p.m. I have a PhD and I'm making a trip book. And, um, <laughs> and then I kind of, I reflect on that for a moment. I'm like, yeah, you have to do a lot of slog, but there are like for, for 90% of the slog, you get the 5% of proximity and the 5% of influence and the 5% of impact. So if you want to be where policy is made, that's, that's really the trade-off. Yeah, I think that's right. And, and I was always reminded of the Bob Dylan line, you got to serve somebody, right? You know, unless you're the president, everybody is staff. Um, now, you may not make copies or you may not get coffee, um, but even uh, to the level of the national security advisor who you know, really only had two people as her assistants, um, you know, everybody gets done what they need to get done because you recognize the, the purpose uh, is important. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, when it has to get done right now and there's nobody else, you step, you step up. So all, to all those young people out there who want to desperately work at the White House or a high level at the Pentagon, fair warning. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> at, least, at least at the Pentagon, you had fancy copy machines, right? And, you know, you had, you, you guys had resources, right? I mean, we were, we were pretty stripped down because our budget is, let's just say, is under higher scrutiny than often the Pentagon mm -hmm. budget. So if we wanted to do something like have extra staff on a trip, uh, no go. You guys can just call up, you know, Air, Airlift Command and off you go. You know, that's also something that I realized, um, you know, you, you put this the National Security Council on a pedestal, and then I'm coming over to these meetings from the Pentagon with like billions of dollars at my back, not personally, but you know, at the back of, of, of the agency that I work for, and you guys have nothing. And, and it was it was very, it, it made me respect your position even more, because when you have to coordinate across the government with such powerful entities with people who have that kind of power, it really is a finesse. It really is politics at the highest level, right? Um, when, you, when you're not operating with resources. Yeah, and it's, you know, I was constantly reminded, I did my graduate work at GW University and, you know, did a lot of work on bureaucratic politics and foreign policy, right? I am Dessler and all these books that we were subjected to and how much of it really does ring true. And, you know, when you're at the National Security Council, yes, we have it great because we're sort of coordinating and, and we're the gatekeepers, but we really do have these multiple jobs. On the one hand, we're supposed to be the, the honest brokers to make sure that the views of the Pentagon, not just the civilian uh, OSD, Office of Secretary of Defense, but also the Joint Chiefs, the, the, chiefs, the military um, uh, side of the House, the State Department, the regional bureaus, and the functional bureaus, who often don't have a single position, Department of Energy, the intelligence community, that all of them have a fair hearing, uh, and that their views and ideas are brought forward. If there's no support for them, we obviously have to uh, let people understand where they're coming from, if these are unanimous opinions or not. But then we also have to be um, the representative for the president. We are his actor or her actor. Uh, and it, it is a bit of a tricky proposition. And I think you know, the, the key rule in my mind at the NSC is sort of been my key rule in Washington, which is, you know, know what you want, know what's important, but you can't be a dick about it, right? I mean, you can't throw your weight around. These are people you're going to have to be in the room with next week or tomorrow on a totally different issue. Um, and you need to be seen as fair. And so if there's an idea that somebody says, you know what, this, abs this is the secretary's position. It absolutely has to be put forward then even if you think it's dumb, you say, fine, of course, we'll include that. And you'll get a chance to chop off on the language. Um, but if you can sort of move them off that position, are you sure this is really where the secretary is? What is it they're trying to achieve? There is a bit of negotiation that goes on. Um, 
there were good days when I felt like I really done my job well and I was proud of myself. And there are days I walked out, it's like, wow, man, those, they, they not only don't they like me, but they just ate my lunch and this is not going to end well. And you know, <laughs> it, it, it's, it's like being a relief pitcher, you know, that there's going to be another game tomorrow and you just have to keep your head uh, from, from getting too low. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's, that's awesome. Thank you for sharing all of that. So tell me a little bit about what you're currently doing and focused on. Sure. So my full-time job is running a group called the Nuclear Crisis Group, which is based at Global Zero. Um, and it's focused on trying to draw attention to those flashpoints around the world uh, that could quickly escalate uh, to a conflict and which conflict could quickly escalate to the nuclear level. Um, and it's uh, made up of about 20 former military and security officials from a dozen countries around the world, including the United States, Russia, China, India, Pakistan, uh, Japan, South Korea, uh, Europe. Um, and uh, we've been busy. Um, you know, we've identified, not uh, hard to do, sort of the four major flashpoints that could go hot quickly, the U.S.-Russia relationship, the Korean Peninsula, South Asia, uh, and the U.S.-China relationship. Uh, and have been working to try to draw attention to those steps that can be adopted now um, to prevent crises from occurring and from those crises getting even worse. Uh, and so we've obviously been focusing a lot of our attention on the U.S.-Russia relationship because of how difficult things have gotten over the last several years. Um, but we do a lot of work uh, on the Korean Peninsula. We've been encouraging uh, the diplomatic approach that's been taken over the last year and a half, um, fortunately, unfortunately without results, um, but also looking at South Asia and the U.S.-China relationship to try and identify how we can uh, reinforce the connections between the countries and improve communication so that if there is a crisis or a conflict or an accident or a military-to-military -military interaction uh, that doesn't go the right way, uh, that there's a code of behavior that will uh, help the leaders sort of find an off-ramp. Speaking of flashpoints, um, any reason why you guys aren't looking at Iran-U.S. relationship? So yeah, we actually talked about that a lot at our first meeting in 2017. And because it's the nuclear crisis group and because it's really focused on avoiding the use of nuclear weapons, wow. there was a sense that Iran not having nuclear weapons, it really didn't make sense to talk about that as a nuclear flashpoint. We have said that should uh, the current approach by the U.S. continue uh, and Iran uh, and other members continue to walk away from their commitments under the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action, the 2015 nuclear deal with Iran, uh, that we could quickly find ourselves having to identify Iran as a nuclear uh, flashpoint, uh, including multiple states. But at this point, it, it just didn't reach that threshold. Knock on wood, um, hopefully we won't have to get there. Mm -hmm. So you recently wrote a piece as part of a roundtable uh, collection for the Texas National Security Review titled Nuclear First Use is Dangerous and Unnecessary. And I was wondering if you could unpack a little bit, what do you mean by nuclear first use? Sure. So, um, you know, I've worn a lot of hats in my nuclear uh, three plus decades. Uh, I started as a Sovietologist working on U.S.-Russian nuclear deterrence theory, uh, and that's always been in the background of the work that I've done on North Korea or Iran or other regional issues. Um, and so in looking at the nuclear policy adopted by this administration that's been maintained under multiple administrations, um, you have to remember that the United States, even though we are the world's most advanced conventional superpower, uh, we maintain a large nuclear arsenal of about 4,000 nuclear weapons. Uh, roughly 2,000 of them are uh, deployed uh, strategic weapons that could be fired in a relatively short period of time. 
Um, and even though the central purpose for our nuclear arsenal is to deter attacks by others, in particular nuclear attack by others against us and our allies, the United States has for as long as we've had nuclear weapons, maintained the right to use nuclear weapons first. Uh, not just as we did in Hiroshima and Nagasaki against Japan to end World War II, um, but to defeat conventional attacks from the Soviet Union or by Russia, um, or to respond to chemical or biological attacks by a country like North Korea, um, or even simply to um, respond now under this administration to things like cyber attack or con advanced conventional attack against major infrastructure. Um, so even though the central purpose for our weapons is deterrence, we still state that uh, we will use nuclear weapons first if we have to. And that policy comes with a price. The price of not only having to maintain certain types of weapons that you wouldn't have to maintain otherwise, but also the recognition that if the world's conventional superpower has to reserve the right to go first, what does that say for countries that are weaker than we are? When we want to encourage Russia not to use nuclear weapons first in a crisis, or North Korea not to fire under threat, when we ourselves are saying we may go at any time, um, that lowers the threshold for nuclear use by others, and in some countries actually speeds up the timetable that they will have to use when considering nuclear options. And the example I use in the piece with North Korea is, God forbid we were in a conventional conflict on the Korean Peninsula, the United States and South Korea would be working to degrade North Korea's command and control system, their communication, telephone, um, secure radio contacts. We'd be looking to destroy their early warning radar, uh, their air defense radar. And in an environment where we have routinely flown nuclear capable bombers over the Korean Peninsula, where we have strategic nuclear assets that could be fired at any time, and where we have said we may use nuclear weapons at any time, it would be very easy for North Korea to confuse large-scale conventional attacks for a prelude to nuclear attack. And in that environment, would Kim Jong-un say, they're coming for me, I need to fend them off now and go nuclear first for fear of never being able to go at all? That consequence is something we have to factor into our nuclear strategy. Now, in a world where we were worried that all these countries were going to start firing nukes at us, uh, uh, I think we'd have to um, seriously um, consider holding on to nuclear first use. But when the greatest threat we face is actually the use of nuclear weapons against us or our allies, and it's in our interest to keep battles conventional, it's in our interest not to have battles at all, maintaining the first use policy to me strikes me as being uh, both unnecessary and um, overly risky. So if the U.S. decided um, basically to um, say we're not going to have a first use policy anymore, what are the things that we would lose? Why, why are policymakers afraid of, of going in this direction? If, 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 I mean, I'm not sure if we're going to use nuclear weapons first in the first place. How credible is it that we use them? But what do we lose if we decide not to? So the arguments that generally come up when we talk about no first use fall into three categories. The first is that um, why make it easy for our adversaries to calibrate what we're going to do? Um, let's be ambiguous. Let's leave it unclear. Uh, and as I mentioned in the case of North Korea, I think there, there may be situations where ambiguity serves our interests, but in a case where it might lead to an adversary using nuclear weapons earlier than they might otherwise do or use them when they wouldn't, I, I think that consequence is generally discounted. Um, people who favor maintaining first use policy 
generally discount the risks of doing so, and I think they, they undervalue those risks. Um, another issue, and this is one that I think we have to take seriously, is that having said for decades to our allies, don't worry, if you're attacked with conventional weapons, we have nuclear weapons and will respond. Um, the concern is that it will somehow undermine our reassurance to our allies. And so any move to adopt no first use, I think would have to be done in consultation with our allies as part of a prolonged conversation about how we're going to enhance our conventional capabilities, enhance our alliance management and our attention to our alliances, step up our uh, cyber defense, step up our uh, additional uh, advanced conventional and non-conventional capabilities um, in order to compensate for the perceived loss of commitment. Now, it's also unfortunate that when we talk about no first use, it's painted as somehow the United States saying we would never use nuclear weapons to defend you, and that's not the case. When we say no first use, we mean exactly that. We wouldn't use them first, but they're still there to respond to a potential nuclear attack by China or Russia or North Korea against us and our allies. That still has a deterrent effect, and I would argue if you get rid of the non-credible threat of first use, it makes your threat to retaliate that much more credible. But that is a, a risk that we have to bear. The, the third um, uh, downside that people paint, and again, I think this is overstated, is the risk that our allies will proliferate themselves, that um, by adopting no first use, we will push non-nuclear countries over the edge and they will develop their own nuclear weapon um, to protect themselves. And again, I think this is exaggerated. Um, I don't see a circumstance where countries like South Korea, Japan, Germany, uh, Estonia, Latvia go nuclear just because we've adopted a no first use policy. Um, if anything, when they reconsider their nuclear options, it's at times when a president like President Trump has signaled over and over again that he's really not committed to our alliances, that he's not prepared to defend our friends and allies. And that is in a world where we still have 4,000 nuclear weapons and a first use policy. So it's not the nuclear weapons that actually reassure, it is the political commitment to our alliances. And I think in a world where the next president presumably returns to a traditional approach to backing up our alliances, we will then have some flexibility in terms of how we manage nuclear policy. And the argument, uh, I think, is fairly strong to adopt no first use and save the money and energy that we use now to maintain those first use options to actually enhance our political and conventional military commitments to those states. Yeah, you know, the, the third reason you, you mentioned there, the proliferation risk, I find that one especially um, unpersuasive um, because it kind of treats the decision to develop nuclear weapons um, as a flip switch. And we know from studying how and why nuclear weapons or states develop nuclear weapons or refrain from developing nuclear weapons, it's extremely complicated, especially when you're talking about a democratic state where voters and populations have a say, and generally voters and populations don't want nuclear weapons. And the even if they did, and even if an administration decided, yes, we're developing nuclear weapons, the capabilities to do so, the infrastructure needed, the resources, we're talking hundreds of millions of dollars. Even though it's old technology, it still takes a large space full of centrifuges to produce mm -hmm. the, the material needed or uh, for plutonium, you still need facilities as well that are extremely expensive. So it kind of, it just oversimplifies that issue. Um, but I wanted to kind of um, tease out something you mentioned about first used policies kind of shortening timelines. And I'm wondering what you guys think about the development of hypersonic weapons by a number of countries and how that might play a role in all of this. Yeah, it's, um, 
I mean, none of these issues can be taken in isolation. A lot of people in the nuclear community focus on no, no first use or new start arms control treaties. Um, but I think we have to take a step back and look at, at the larger strategic landscape. I mean, the reality is that the United States and Russia are increasingly relying on military capabilities to both signal and defend their national security interests as opposed to economic, diplomatic, cultural, other, other means. Um, those capabilities are advancing in ways that undermine the security of the other. Um, Russia believes that American missile defense, both in Europe and in the United States, is reducing Russia's ability to have a reliable nuclear deterrent, and they are taking steps to rectify that. We believe that Russia's development of missiles in violation of the INF Treaty, um, uh, uh, hybrid warfare in uh, uh, Ukraine, uh, election interference is undermining our security and we are beginning to take steps to counter those in the military space as well. Um, we don't talk to each other at a senior strategic level and a senior political level. Um, we don't listen to each other in those instances when even um, less senior people engage with each other. And uh, at least in the United States, the political uh, direction has been to ignore what other countries think or feel and simply think about American security um, in a vacuum. So I worry a lot about things like hyperglide missiles. I worry a lot about things like advancing missile defenses because they're being pursued independent of how the, they uh, provoke an action and reaction cycle. Um, the United States arguably might have a small need for a small arsenal of fast moving, highly precise, highly kinetic uh, hyperglide missiles. Um, the Bin Laden example is the one that's generally used. If you had exquisite intelligence that an adversary was in a specific location and was only gonna be there for 20 or 30 minutes and you had to get them, um, you might see a, a case for a missile like that. Um, Russia and China are looking at hyperglide missiles both because they are fast, but also because they are maneuverable and they are able to evade US missile defenses. Uh, that cycle of uh, development is being pursued without any discussion um, among the states pursuing it. And so I don't think hypergliding of itself is a dramatic uh, uh, weapon that will destabilize the strategic balance. But I do worry that unconstrained development of these systems in large numbers could really undermine strategic balance. And so it strikes me as an area ripe for discussion between the United States, Russia, and China. Uh, to say, you know, are, what is the purpose of these weapons? How many do you think you might be developing? Will they be nuclear or conventional? Uh, and as we have some predictability, then I think they could probably be developed without um, causing a lot of difficulties in the, in the um, strategic balance. For countries like North Korea, smaller states, it's a much more complicated issue. Uh, I don't think we're going to negotiate bilateral arms control agreements with North Korea. What they're looking for is some sort of uh, security that says we're not going to decapitate them. Um, there are limits to how much we can do because we are a large conventional and nuclear power. Uh, what we need to be doing there is working on reducing the sources of conflict, which include North Korea's unbridled nuclear program and the ballistic missile program. That's a different type of diplomatic discussion that I think has to happen. So you mentioned that we're not talking to the Russians, and I know that you're a proponent of renewing the New START Treaty with Russia. Um, before we talk about New START, can you take us all the way back to arms control in the 1990s and start one and what it was and what, what we've achieved since then. And then let's talk about new start. 
I know we're on, I know we're on uh, uh, audio only, so you can't see me smiling. When you see all the way back to the 90s, you know, I started studying arms control. Uh, I started studying all the way back in the 80s, and of course it goes all the way back to the 50s. Um, but um, in 1991, as the Soviet Union was collapsing, uh, Ronald Reagan and Mikhail Gorbachev negotiated the Strategic Arms Reduction Treaty. This was uh, the successor to the SALT agreements negotiated by Nixon and Carter uh, that limited the number of nuclear weapons that the two sides could have, but actually never cut them. Ronald Reagan says, no, no, we actually want to bring the numbers down and negotiated START one, which limited both countries or each country to no more than 6,000 accountable nuclear weapons. Now it actually allowed for many more because each bomber that carried nuclear weapons counted as one nuclear weapon, even though they could carry 20 or even more. Um, but the accounting system was set up and provided for on-site inspections that would help the United States and Russia verify that the numbers imposed by those treaties were not being exceeded. Uh, and that treaty worked remarkably well from 1991 until 2009, um, when uh, the Bush administration basically refused to negotiate a follow-on agreement with Russia uh, and left it to the Obama administration to try to figure out what to do um, with the US-Russian strategic relationship. Uh, President Obama decided that it was imperative that we pick up the continuity of inspections in Russia uh, as quickly as possible. And so what we did was negotiate the New START Treaty, which reduced the accountable number of weapons on each side to no more than 1,550, uh, in the hopes that we would then negotiate a follow-on agreement that could pursue much deeper reductions. Um, we never got the chance to do that for a number of very complicated reasons, including uh, the rejection of a follow-on agreement by Russia and then eventually the invasion of Crimea. But in 2010, we put in place the New START Treaty, which uh, capped the number of nuclear weapons in each country, provided for on-site inspections by each country in the other, and that will last until 2021 at a minimum, but that can be extended by a period of up to five years just by a presidential agreement. Uh, doesn't need to go back to the Senate for ratification or for, for approval because it was already approved in the original uh, treaty itself. Um, a question is whether or not the Trump administration will extend that treaty beyond 2021, uh, whether it will refuse to extend it and basically leave the next administration to decide in its first 16 days whether it wants to uh, extend the agreement, um, or as some people believe is possible, whether John Bolton might convince Donald Trump to actually withdraw from New START as he convinced him to do with the JCPOA uh, and the INF Treaty, arguing that this was an Obama treaty that didn't include countries like China, uh, and that since Russia is cheating on all of its other arms control agreements anyway, uh, that Russia is eventually going to cheat on this one, so you might as well get ahead of the curve and just pull out of it. Um, I, I wouldn't bet a lot of money that that's what's going to happen, but it looks increasingly likely uh, that John Bolton is not going to uh, encourage President Trump to extend this treaty and may actually convince him to pull out. So let's talk about Russia. Are they interested in extending the treaty? So Russia has offered no less than two times at the presidential level from President Putin to President Trump to extend New START. Uh, they are in full compliance with the treaty, even though they weren't in compliance with INF and other agreements. Uh, and they clearly see value in maintaining New START for a couple of reasons. One, uh, it gives them global prestige that they are the only nuclear peer competitor with the United States and that we recognize that via treaty. 
Uh, and also that it gives them some predictability in the number of nuclear weapons and the types of nuclear weapons that the United States is going to deploy. Um, they also think it gives them sort of uh, a way of uh, showing that the United States is really getting back to business as usual after the invasion of Crimea, uh, that even though we disagree on that, we can still do, still do things like extend New START, cooperate in other areas. So they see both a political and strategic value in extending the treaty. Um, the United States, for having uh, had President Trump in office now for two and a half years, still has not determined whether or not extension is in its interest even though the Joint Chiefs of Staff, the civilian military, the intelligence community, uh, and the diplomatic community all support New START extension, um, the president and his uh, national security advisor have yet to decide whether or not it's in our interest. So, you know, we withdrew, or President Trump withdrew from the JCPOA with Iran uh, very abruptly. Uh, I feel without full consideration of the what now questions, and now we're left with the what now, but we're left with a partner that probably won't trust us the next time around. Um, what, what are the costs? If we, if we decide not to extend New START Treaty and it expires, what are the costs to the U.S.? So um, I think there are a number of very severe consequences if New START um, is not extended or even worse if the U.S. withdraws. Um, first and foremost, it will basically poke a stick in the eye of the U.S. intelligence community and blind them to what is the number one threat to the existence of America, which is Russia's nuclear arsenal. Um, any intelligence official, retired or current, will tell you that we get from the New START inspection process and the data exchange process information that is otherwise unachievable or un, um, uh, ungettable uh, through other national technical means. In other words, uh, we get more data because of New START than any spy satellite or any spy or any electronic eavesdropping system can get. And so we essentially will be tying uh, one hand behind our back in terms of identifying and seeing what Russia is doing. The other thing we will do is make it possible for Russia, which is basically finished with its nuclear modernization program, to very rapidly exceed the number of nuclear weapons that it is limited to under New START. Um, even though they can have only 1,550 under New START, they could very rapidly put multiple warheads on many of their missiles. They could, uh, because they have hot production line for their ICBMs and submarines, produce more and more quickly than we can because we have yet to begin production of our systems. And so they could very rapidly exceed the number of weapons the United States could deploy, creating a strategic imbalance of forces. Um, so, and third thing I would argue is a political cost, which is that the United States under President Obama agreed that we would do two things with regard to our nuclear arsenal. We would limit its growth by adopting new START bilaterally with Russia, but that we would fund a nuclear modernization program which would replace the ICBMs, ballistic missiles on submarines, and strategic bombers um, for another generation. If New START goes away, the support for modernization, in my view, also goes away. And Democrats will be arguing, why are we spending all of this money on a nuclear modernization program when in fact we could just be negotiating a new arms control agreement with Russia that looked very different from the old one that got rid of ICBMs or that decided to shape nuclear forces in a totally different way. Um, I don't think that's exactly or automatically where we will go, but um, there is tenuous support for the $50 billion a year nuclear modernization program. Now, if Donald Trump torpedoes 
a signature arms control achievement just because he doesn't like President Obama. Um, and if Russia's in compliance, then I think there'll be a lot of Democrats that say, you know what, we no longer support nuclear modernization. We want to go back to a blank sheet of paper and look at what does the future nuclear relationship with Russia look like? How many nuclear weapons do we need? And how do we prioritize other programs, whether they're diplomatic or military, over this nuclear program, which doesn't make a whole lot of strategic sense. I love that you started with uh, information and intelligence, because I think that's fundamentally misunderstood in the general public. I think that um, it was underplayed also in the Iran deal, um, the idea that um, Iran had signed up to uh, inspections by the International Atomic Energy Agency, which gave us knowledge that we, we just don't have. Once, once, once they shut them out, we don't have that information. There's no way, there's no other way to get that quality of information. So regardless of what you think about Russia or Iran and their compliance with the details of the treaty and whether they're in 100% compliance or 99%, the information we cannot replace. Right. And that means we can't know things. Yeah, I, I think that's true. I mean, in the case of Russia, they're in full compliance with New START. That's not in dispute. Mm -hmm. We, we verify that uh, on an almost daily basis. In the case of Iran, I mean, fortunately, the inspection provisions are still in place because it was a multilateral agreement. But ironically, what Donald Trump did by pulling out of the nuclear deal is he lost his greatest potential tool for hitting Iran with crippling sanctions, which was the ability to snap back via the UN Security Council all of the sanctions that had been imposed on Iran prior to the negotiation of the Iran nuclear deal. Uh, under the JCPOA, any country who is a party can, at the United Nations, call for a vote on the, the extension of waivers for sanctions. And then, as a veto-wielding member of the UN Security Council, the United States can veto that, and all of the sanctions under Chapter 7 would go back into force. By pulling out of the deal, the United States no longer has that legal right. And so uh, the same thing, I think, would be true in the case of uh, Russia and New START. Um, not necessarily on the sanctions front, but to say, well, we want to punish Russia for building a large number of nuclear weapons, or we want to constrain Russia from building a large number of nuclear weapons. The means to do that is New START, and pulling out of it actually moves the U.S. farther away from any objective that the Trump administration might have. You know, I try not to get into the head of John Bolton because it's sort of a dark, scary place, but as far as I can tell, what he believes is that since the Russians don't abide by international law anyway, um, that we shouldn't reinforce the charade that somehow a treaty will constrain Russian action, that the predictability and the information that we do glean from it isn't worth the price we pay in sort of masquerading uh, around this illusion that international law actually exists and matters. Uh, and I think it's a pretty dangerous point of view. It's essentially ideology over practical constraint. Um, I have my own ideology, but when it comes to protecting America, I tend to focus in on what's pragmatic. Uh, I want to prevent Iran from having enough nuclear material to build weapons. I want to prevent Russia from building a lot more weapons that could overwhelm us and our allies. Um, those are things I think that should take priority over ideology. Yeah, and I think I think what you were pointing out before is that when, when the U.S. imposes sanctions by itself on a country like Iran, that's very limited in terms of its effectiveness. Where it gets its true power is when a group of countries band together to impose those same sanctions because it's always, you know, if, if it's just us, then, you know, other countries, there are loopholes, many more loopholes for, for Iran to get around. So this has been extremely fascinating conversation. Um, 
where can listeners find you on the web, on Twitter? Where should they look you up if they want more information? Sure. Um, as my friends tell me, I'm probably too active on Twitter, but they can find me at JB Wolfstall on Twitter. Uh, they can also get a hold of me via the Global Zero website at globalzero.org. Uh, I, I am not shy and not hard to find, so a quick Google search will track me down. Great. Well, thank you so much for your time today. Sure, Natasha. Thanks so much. I appreciate it, and good luck with everything. Thanks for listening to the Authors of Mass Destruction podcast. If you enjoyed the show, please leave a review. You can also support my time in producing the show with Patreon at www.patreon.com forward slash Natasha Bajma. For more information about the podcast, go to www.authorsofmassdestruction.com. See you next week.